You're listening to Sports Biz Podcast, presented by Game Plan U, with your co-hosts Mark Rapo and Rob Thompson. Love sports? Dream of working in the sports industry? Game Plan U Career Workshops is a self-assessment and mentoring program for sports career seekers. Game Plan U is a 90-day program identifying your skills through a self-assessment and work one-on-one with a career coach to help you design a career roadmap. Go to sportsdreamjob.com to learn more about all the incredible resources and career support available at sportsdreamjob.com. We are live here. This is a Sports Biz Podcast. Our special guest today is Mal Karwalski. I was close. You were perfect. Was I? Absolutely. Ah, it only took me three years. You could be Polish. <laughs> Your former VP of sports sales, along with probably a, a lot of other roles that you had and titles that you had at Univision. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, anybody that can last 32 years and come out to tell the story, <laughs> it's a miracle now. There are a few stories, yes. Uh, and I want to get into them. So um, so let's start. Let's start your story. You know, I, I mean... You have there's probably so much to tell within 32 years, um, but how did you go from the North American Soccer League? Mm-hmm. Yes. To that was your first job out of college. Correct. To if you want to talk about that, you can talk about that, yeah. and then you transition over to Univision. Well, yeah, this is this is all kind of uh, improbable that you know a, a kid with a Polish last name winds up in Spanish television. Um, and I guess part of it might have to do, and I'm, I know I'm going back too far, but w- right. where I was born, yeah. which was Bristol, Connecticut, really? believe it or not, which, yeah, the uh, yeah. self-proclaimed worldwide leader of sports right. was headquartered. <laughs> so I got to watch it as a kid from you know a, a trailer yeah. and a single satellite dish to right. uh, what it's become today. Unbelievable. So you know, maybe that was in my blood somewhere. Um, but in spite of the fact that I wasn't very athletic myself, I just I just absolutely loved sports. I had a real passion for it. And uh, I recall devouring the sport the sporting news mm-hmm. when that came in every yeah. week. And yeah. there was an article in there, um, this is back around nineteen seventy six, there was an article in there about a, a sports administration program uh, on an undergraduate level that was just being offered by St. John's University. And John Geis, who was the uh, the director of the program, was interviewed. And I read that article, and I was like, I got to get into that program. Um, I was not exactly the best student in the world mm-hmm. um, at that time. So I got in the car, drove to Queens, sat down with John, and I had to explain to him all my incompletes and failing grades from a few years of you know wandering around undergraduate schools all over the East Coast. He bought my story about my passion, yeah. and he said, "We're gonna, you know, we're gonna wipe that slate clean, and you're in." So this is way before any type of sport management was a real kind of trending major like it is today. Absolutely. So they were one of the first. They're they were the the kind of the, the leaders in that in that realm. They were. Yeah. I I'd been a, a aware of a program at I think it was Ohio University, yeah. but that was a a, a post grad course. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this was undergrad, it was just like, yeah, that's got my name on it. And then when you got there, it just it just everything started clicking and for sure, all, yeah, absolutely. Um, the coursework was fantastic, but of course, like in any of these sports management 
programs, the real you know nugget for you is your internship. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, a lot of my classmates were looking to go to the big time in New York City, mm-hmm. right? They wanted Jets, Giants, right. Mets, Yankees, and all that other jazz. Um, I was looking for opportunity in other areas. And at that time, the original North American Soccer League had been putting 70,000 people in Giants Stadium for a team called the New York Cosmos. Sure. And Pele was a huge name. Yeah. They had just brought over friends, Beckenbauer and Giorgio Canalia. Shep and Messing was Shep Messing yeah. was part of the madness there. And I don't know, maybe I was the only person to apply for that internship because I didn't know if a soccer ball was round right. or you know, oblong. Right. I'm kidding. Um, but I, I got so. in. I, I got hope. in. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, when you get those internships, you, you, you do what is asked of you, right. no matter how menial the job but you also keep your eyes open, and to sound uh, a little bit like Yogi Berra, you can you can observe a lot by seeing, and <laughs> and you get to see how the operation you know really works. And through the course of of my uh, my internship at uh, the North American Soccer League, although I was specifically placed in the public relations area. Um, I got to know and talk to the guys who handle television and marketing and sales and licensing. And, you know, it's, it's kind of that uh, intellectual curiosity to find out how the business works, which helped, um, you know, give me a, a really full background of, of how the business of the NASL worked. And that was all well and good. What were you originally yeah. interested in? Were you interested in the, the PR, marketing? Were you more of a journalist when you when you hit the team or yes I, I i was more interested in the writing and talking to people and in my time at the nasl i did get to speak because you, you know you're working for the commissioner's office right. you get to speak with people literally all over the country mm-hmm. you're in touch with every one of the individual team pr guys and the beat writers mm-hmm. who wrote about soccer whether it was from the california surf to the vancouver whitecaps to the cosmos, of course, and I got to know sports writers all over the country, which was just an amazing experience. Right. Um, and all was going well. The NASL was just like going gangbusters. We had a national TV contract with ABC for Sunday afternoon games. Um, it was it was just amazing. But then the what do you the, think happened? Well, the, the the bottom fell out. It might have been too much, too fast. Mm. The league wanted to have a national footprint in order to justify that that national TV contract, right. and they might have brought on too many franchises that um, that didn't exactly know how to operate in that environment. Um, that's the simplest way I can I can put it. I, I see that the way Major League Soccer now is doing things, it's it's a lot more. Um, it's, it's, it's well thought out and it's, it's very strategic. We were maybe a little less so. We were more anxious to get uh, a foothold in, in U.S. sports at that time. But what's amazing to me is even back then in the 70s, the Cosmos, were, they were selling out. They are selling out Giant Stadium. Right, I they mean, were. They had, had sixty, seventy thousand, and you mentioned that it was packed. They were, and yeah. there were other success stories in Tampa right. and Portland, which mm-hmm. now the current version of the Portland Timbers is right. wildly successful. Right. Seattle was wildly successful, right. but for every one of those, there was uh, there was a Memphis Rogues, mm-hmm. and you know there was a Tulsa Roughnecks. So 
you know, you're only as good as your weakest team. Well, we had a few too many weak teams at that time. When you look back now historically and where MLS is now, it, and you just mentioned some of the crossover markets that seemed like they were doing well back in the 70s and indication they're doing well here today. I don't know how, how Red Bull, if, if, if Red Bull Stadium if in New York, I don't know if they're, they're filling in those in. But um, what do you see from the difference between – the American culture of soccer back then to now was it was it like pulling teeth to get any kind of PR back then to I mean they had a national TV contract yes and we had we had beat writers mm-hmm. in in every market but the amount of space that the paper would give that writer was severely limited mm-hmm. and that was the main form you know of, of getting your your word out back then was right. newspaper today I mean uh, MLS is a, yeah, yeah MLS is in the, in the golden era of yeah. of, of media right. you know and that that's helped tremendously mm. what also helped tremendously was the business that I went into after my NASL career which was Spanish television mm-hmm. and it transitions beautifully into there because who loves soccer more than Hispanics in that's this country right, right? Yep. so we kind of went from um, from NASL soccer to international soccer with what was then called the Spanish International Network, Sin TV, and there's a story behind that. Perfect. Um, Sin TV was uh, what I joined in 1982 after I uh, had my stint in, in the NASL, and um, I think there's a story in here that uh, that job seekers in sports um, could maybe use uh, as they go through their careers, which is at the NASL I wanted to be both respected and liked and in that sense i made friends everywhere with everybody because you never know where that connection is going to help you somewhere now i lost my job at the nasl as a budget cut i'm making eleven thousand dollars a year so if they're cutting that kind of a job you can tell how bad things were (laughs) um and i was out of work for a few months but there was a fellow by the name of dan herbst was a soccer contributor to Sports Illustrated, and I befriended him, and that friendship um, paid off in terms of uh, Dan recommending me for a job with Spanish International Network in February of 1982. They were going to broadcast all 52 matches of the 1982 World Cup from Spain, and they needed someone to do publicity. Who better than Mal Karwaski, right? That's right. So... I got the job. It was it was a temporary job. I was just supposed to work the summer and promote the heck out of World Cup soccer. The connections that I had developed through the NASL, knowing all the sports writers and the PR guys who could help me get, you know, little bits of information placed and everything from the Dallas Morning News to the LA Times paid off tremendously. So the heretofore unknown Spanish International Network was finally getting some big national press at the time. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing better than having the Spanish announcer yell, goal, at the top of his lungs, which also helped, too. Right. We got, you know, we got tremendous publicity that. From was that was a great brand. The branding message. Absolutely. And, right? And right. Because everybody knows that today. Totally. Yeah. And that started with the SIN network? That started with the Spanish International Network, which yeah. became Univision in 1986. Gotcha. For the next World Cup, which was in Mexico. Um, so what was your role there? I mean, after after you transitioned over from, from the World Cup, you got hired full-time? No. I was actually, 
I was put to the side, but the company paid me while they created a job for me. And so a few months after the World Cup had ended, they brought me back and they said, okay, we think we want to take sports seriously here. So one of my first jobs was to go out and buy tapes of international soccer matches and put them on the air on Sunday afternoons. So I had to learn the international soccer business very, very quickly. Wow. After that, they said, why don't you go out and buy some boxing for us? We'd love to put boxing on. That's another sport Hispanics absolutely love. We want to make our own boxing program. I said, I don't know the first thing about this sport, and I don't know where to begin. The executive vice president of the company said to me, don't worry. If you've got money to spend, people will find you. That's true. <laughs> he was totally right. That's so true. Every program broker around yeah. the world right. found my name and address and sold me boxing tapes from the Philippines to Japan to everywhere that boxing was taking place. And we had, a, we had an, an amazing program. We were showing boxing from the four corners of the world mm. in the lighter weight classes because that's where the Mexican and yeah. Latin American boxers compete. That was their so weight we, class, yeah. We were showing things that no one else was doing back in those days. It was amazing. Um, and so, so as a buyer, you know, you probably had to learn what the rates were and, and what, you know, the, the, was it time buys or was it you're, buy, you're buying content? No, I had, a, uh, I had a budget and I had to go out and buy the programs within, within the budget and just make sure the tapes arrived and get them on the air. And it was simple as that. And then, simple and, as that. And you, got, and you had the rights, obviously, to sell. Um, Univision had the rights to sell advertising against that. Yes, we did. Yeah, because you're just buying content. Yep. At that point. And how long, how long did you do that for? Oh, I did that, I don't know, for a few years. Yeah. And uh, things kept evolving. Univision is a big, small company. Yeah. And in, in that sense, uh, I was able to do a lot of different jobs uh, within my, my long career there, um, including at one point um, they needed someone to help establish a new production facility down in Miami when they consolidated all the resources from different parts of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they sent me down there to um, hire producers, directors, and a few on-air talent mm -hmm. and, you know, get together an operation that was going on in, in Miami. Mm -hmm. So I got a little uh, experience there um, with, a, with a lot of help from a lot of a lot of friends mm -hmm. and colleagues that I'd made, you know, through the years within the company. Mm. Um, so I was able to take care of that. And then I went back to New York City. I was, that was down in Miami. I went back to New York City and then got involved in sales. And there I was able to learn everything from the background of how stuff gets sold, pricing and planning, mm -hmm. uh, marketing, um, you know, literally writing up the sales proposals, going out and doing the pitch, and then closing the deals. So, you know, it was like one-stop shopping. That was it. Th that was it. Y you call Mal. Right. Forget about Better Call Saul. Better Call Mal. And everybody <laughs> in the company did because yeah. for the longest time, I was the only guy at Univision who had sports in his title. Mm. Um, that changed around 2009. They brought in more people, and we finally built a staff around you know, what I had built over the years. And, uh, you know, we, we you know, turned a, a, a little operation like a, a Sin TV right. into, uh, into Univision through, through soccer, through boxing, mostly through the World Cup. That, that was your platform? That was it, yep, the World Copa. Cup. Was, yeah. it the, was it the Copa platform? The, or did 
The Copa Mundial, yeah. yeah. Copa Mundial, that was, that. you know, we, we lived in these four-year cycles, you know, where the World Cup would end, but, you know, we, we'd have something that brought in, rolled in up against that until two years ahead of time. Then you had the, the World Cup qualifying. Mm-hmm. You could always count on that. But the international tournaments, both in Europe and in South America, also were just ratings gangbusters for us. Mm-hmm. So we, we really latched on to, to everything that was global about, about soccer and brought it in to, to Univision. And that's why it was so wildly successful. How long did it take you to actually learn to speak Spanish? Okay, so I was in on the business side of yeah. this. And, you know, the business of advertising and the business of negotiating the rights right. is all done in English. Right. I am not the on-air guy, right. fortunately. <laughs> yeah. So I did learn enough Spanish to be conversant, but yeah. never fluent. Yeah, that's interesting. Nonetheless, I was named an honorary Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> I learned to enjoy Cuban coffee. Yeah, and um, and uh, it was it was a great career, great career with Univision. Favorite moments. What are some of your favorite moments that you had? Um, they were they were all the World Cups. Yeah, all the World Cups. Um, like any major network, uh, we took our best sponsors to the to the World Cup tournament, mm-hmm. and we always brought them to the final. Mm-hmm. So I got to attend every World Cup final from 1990 through 2014. That's seven World Cup finals that I witnessed from the stadium, from Tokyo, Paris, Rio, you name the city. I was I was there, and that that's. That's like, you know, that's the stuff of a dream job, honestly. Were you a soccer fan before? No. And would you say that you're a soccer fan now? After Absolutely. What is it about the passion of soccer fans globally that's different than, say, an NFL fan or a college football fan? I don't want to get into comparing passion because, you know, everybody's, everybody's passion and heart for their sport is is unmatched mm. um, but i find that soccer fans more than any other are, are are really global citizens because if you if you like soccer and can talk even the smallest bit about soccer wherever you travel in the world you can find a friend you you will find someone you know at your hotel at the bar at the restaurant if you if you can work soccer into the conversation you're 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 an immediate friend uh and, and, and that is something you really can't do with a lot of other American sports. You know, it's just, it's not received that way in other parts. It doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just, um, it's just different. It's just different that way. The other thing that a lot of people don't know that I, I just want to add to the conversation is that um, a lot of people judge soccer in this country by the strength and value of our professional league, which is the way you judge pro football. Major League Baseball, hockey, right? Best in the world. Mm-hmm. We're not the best in the world yet at, at soccer in terms of our pro league, but a lot of people may be astounded to know that there is more soccer broadcast in this country than there. You can add up all the MLB games, all the NFL games, add them all up. There are more hours of soccer broadcast in the United States because there are fans here who love La Liga. They love the German League. They love uh, Serie A from Italy, in addition to our own professional league. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's consumed like crazy. 
and you you can see it. It's all over Fox. It's all over ESPN. It's all over Univision, Telemundo. Everybody's doing it. They're crawling all over each other to get more rights to import more soccer into this country. Do you think, to, to talk about rights, do you think that bubble is going to burst at any time soon with broadcast media rights and those deals that are happening in the billions? Doesn't appear so. Yeah. Um, you know, Univision was outbid by Telemundo for the rights to the uh, to the uh, the current two year cycle, which mm-hmm. is the recently concluded 2018 and 22 World Cups, and Telemundo has 2026 folded into that. Um, and the popularity, particularly of soccer, is not waning; it's only growing. It's just the way that people are consuming it. That's that's what we we have to watch, mm-hmm. uh, especially. When you have soccer coming in from different parts of the world, um, people won't be sitting in front of their television necessarily watching it. It's going to be consumed in so many other different ways. And that's, that's really going to be the trick in the future as to how to, how to monetize it over, over lots of different platforms. What was the multiple screen that, that had to be conversations that that was all part of your, your time there, right? It really totally. started 2008, 2009, you know, the OTT and um, – what what was it? How did you guys look at when you're talking about looking at the the rights deals? Was it about you know when you back into that number, how are you going to recoup that those expenses? Mm-hmm. You know, obviously people are going to need your station; they want your station, um, so you're you're going to get the subs. But also from an advertisement standpoint, obviously, do the numbers always work, or was it more about you needed to own that space? Was that the value in it, or were you always looking at how do we make a profit or at least break even? What were those conversations like? <clears throat> we did the numbers, and, and now you're talking about buying the rights to the World Cup many, many years before technology yeah. is evolving, so you don't know. Yeah, You don't always know, so you're always kind of playing catch-up. But it's a wonderful partnership working on the ad sales side, as I did in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years of my career there. Um, it, it was a tremendous partnerships between advertiser and broadcaster um, that that really moved the ball forward for us. Um, uh, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, General Motors, Home Depot were some of the accounts that I worked on. And we had we, we made amazing programs with with all those with all those advertisers, um, only a couple of which were actually FIFA global partners. Most of our advertisers were not, yet they wanted to find a way to spin the World Cup within their world. Mm-hmm. And that creative challenge was also um, something that we we rose to that challenge very well with 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 all of our clients. Um and, and th- those were kind of the secrets to our success is, is really partnerships between uh, between media and, and client. And the brands. Yeah, absolutely. Would you have conversations with the brands prior to even bidding on saying, if we did this, what would be your partnership investment? So at least you had some commitments going into it. We uh, well, we we kind of had a track record, particularly with the FIFA Global partners. Mm-hmm. We had already established great relationships with all of them, and we we knew that if uh, if we put the right deal in front of them, we'd we'd get their support. At the same time, they were very forward-thinking companies, and their agencies were also very forward-thinking. Uh, a lot of times, a, a, an agency will put a wall between the you know the media and the client. 
And in the case of the most successful ones, they let, they let that wall down for a little bit and really see the partnership. We were literally brought into the bowels of uh, Coca-Cola's headquarters in Atlanta, and they told us what their strategy was going to be globally. And they did this several years before the World Cup launched, and they said, here's our plan. How can we take a sponsorship with you guys and make amplify that plan and blow it out of the water? And by having them talk to us with their agency all together, it created magic, absolute magic, you know, when, when you do that sort of collaborative work. And that's one of the things I, you know, I, one of my big takeaways from, from my career in, in sports, sports advertising is uh, those partnerships where, where you're really sincere and you're really looking out to do the right thing by the client. Uh, when you do that and everybody wins, there's just nothing better. No doubt about it. It's, it's always, it's more long-term play than transactional. Totally. Yeah. Totally. What, so what would, what would, were those media rights just for the United States? Yes. In, 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 the, in the Spanish category? In the Spanish language, only U.S. Only U.S. Did it also include radio or was it just? No, those just, are separate rights. Those are separate rights. But you guys went after just the TV rights. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Well, well, there was an incumbent and they always renewed their, their rights. Right. And were they multiple year deals when you uh, get it? Always two, you know, two World Cup cycles. Yeah, gotcha. And so you locked them in and we did that and get out and sell. Yep, absolutely. So um, I know one of the other things we'd like to to kind of talk about is uh, how does somebody like me stay in a in a job like this for for thirty two years? What's that secret sauce? Well, that Mal, that you know, that doesn't happen no. anymore. No one stays. With especially in this industry, the sports and entertainment media industry, no one stays at the same place for 32 years. Part of it is the diversity of experience that I was able to get. Like I said, I went through public relations to program acquisitions, a little bit of production, every part of media sales, and uh, you know all those things um, that it was an evolution over time. Mm-hmm. Um, was part of my longevity, but the other part was um, adapting and changing to regime change. We had a lot of people come in from many parts of the, the media world. We had a group come in from CBS, from ABC, from Viacom, and lately from NBC. And all those cultures came in to the Univision culture, and we melded those together. And, and it, it's how well you adapt and change, know what you know, but more importantly, know what you don't know and be willing to, you know, be willing to adapt to the new culture that's saying this is the way we're going to do business. Do you, do you think, and I think that's a great point because there's so many ways we could go off of that, but knowing what you know now as a business leader and in, in a high-level executive, would you give advice to, to young professionals of, know what you know, self-awareness, but would you say go all in on what you're really good at or would you say know what you're good at but try to improve on what you're not good at? Well, I think there are elements of both that that, that create success. Um, all I can say is that sometimes you, you look for a dream job, you know, because that's kind of what we're, we're talking about right. here. Sometimes you look for that dream job. You you know, you have it in your mind and you go for it. And in my case, the dream job chose me, I think. Mm. I, I didn't 
start out seeking to work in Spanish TV and to sell soccer. Those are things that, that, that happened over time. But you have to make that first move. You have, to, you have to jump off at some point and try something and see where it goes. And that's not to say that all of life you know, happens that way, but that's certainly one path you can, you can take. But you can't just sit there. You, you have to decide to, to do something and go for it. And then if that doesn't work, I suppose I would have fallen back, retreated, and you know, figured out a different way to go. But I was lucky to get it uh, on, the first, on the first jump. With, with today's world and everything um, going in the direction of digital, um, how it's distributed, how the content's dis- distributed and consumed, what's your thoughts on that as far as developing skill sets of a young professional com- coming into this? Because just sales, sales skills is probably just, it could be enough in some places, but it might not be enough. What's your thoughts on kind of you, you jumped out right at the time it's peaking? Yes, um, and you know, just like myself, going into it, I, I figured out that if Disney Media, Digital Media Group needs, I need to understand how it, not only how you sell it, but how it works. How, how are people interacting with it? How are they consuming it? And then what are the numbers behind it, the analytics behind it? And I thought it was fascinating. Um, so what's your thoughts now on young professionals kind of understanding that space and not just saying, hey, I love soccer and I'm passionate about soccer because someone in your position is like, okay, we all are, but what makes you right. different? Well, part of it is um, if, you're, if you're naturally curious about things and always asking questions and always interested in talking to people about what they're doing, what they're up to, I think that's super important. You know, I, I pointed that out in my early days in the NASL, just wanted to learn about everybody else's part of the business. So curiosity is one thing. Um, you know, the, the friendships, the relationships, they, they have to be authentic. Um, you know, if you're pretending to be someone's friend because, you know, you're, you're doing business, uh, it's, it's going to be a short road. It's going to be a short road. You know, you need, you need to find uh, good lasting relationships there. Um, as far as uh, with, with the changes in, in digital, I think you have to be far more culturally aware because, uh, it's not just sports. Does it's not in a silo anymore. Sports is lifestyle. It's culture. It's art. It's music. It's fashion. It's hairstyles for heaven's sakes. It's everything. And unless you're in tune with that broad picture of the world, um, it's going to be hard to just like a single sport. You've got to you've got to have your your awareness out in every part of the business because that all affects what's going on. I mean, there the the extensions of digital, and I hate to call them that, but I, I'm sorry, I'm sort of programmed with right. that 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 terminology. Uh, but the digital piece um, has so much to do with all those those elements. It's not just about the highlights and the analysis. It's it's about much bigger things than that. It, it's it's part of it's part of, part of the cultural conversation that goes on. There's so many um, politicians and actors and singers who love soccer, and I'm working with a group right now who's trying to put together our own version of the Tonight Soccer Show or Soccer Show Tonight, which has the elements of late night TV, but all themed with soccer. And people around the world who love soccer, but yet you bring in that 
sort of Jimmy Fallon style party games mm-hmm. with it and conversation so that, you know, it's it's entertainment. And I think that's the way you have to think nowadays about sports. If people want to follow that, what what is that? Is it going to is it going to live online? We are pitching both linear and digital networks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're talking to Netflix, Amazon, Disney, Apple. We've got conversations going everywhere there. Plus our, our friends in the uh, Spanish TV world at Univision, Telemundo, Fox, be in sport, anyone. You know, we're, we're looking for someone who wants to partner with us and, uh, and uh, take a leap into uh, an area that's never been done before. Right. It's, it sounds awesome. It sounds interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, is it too early to talk about what the name is and... Uh, it is. Okay. It is. Uh, it's, Fair enough. It's, it's in conceptual stage right now, and but we've got talent picked out. We have relationships with, uh, you know, major music promotion groups um, and promoters who want to get their talent on the show. Um, stuff's starting to really gel very, very quickly. So if anybody who is listening or watching wants to reach out to find out a little bit more information because maybe they're in that space, how do they get a hold of you? Um, well, uh, they can get a hold of me through LinkedIn. Gotcha. I'm, I'm there. Best way to get a hold of people. Nowadays, Absolutely. Isn't it? Yep. Um, so one last question. Sure. And I think this is an interesting topic that many people talk about now. The evolution of education, the value of where you went to college versus that life resume to which you talked about. You know, get out there and get experience, understand the world, understand cultures and languages and people. In today's world, to you, if you're still out there hiring young professionals, which one has a little bit more value in your mind? Someone who maybe went to an Ivy League school or somebody who maybe went to a a state school but yet had two years out there experience in the world and, and did something of value. I don't think, in my mind, there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's room for all levels of education. And I also firmly believe that to be successful in business, in the business of sport, is you not only have to be interested in sport, but I think you have to be interested in far more than that. You, you have to be, if you will, a citizen of the world, because there's only so long you're going to be able to sit there and talk to a client about sports. I mean, that, that, can, take, that can take a lot of the conversation. It can take a lot of the you know, air out of the, out of the room. But ultimately, I found the more, most interesting people to be those that have other passions in life, too. And you can only get that by educating yourself, whether it's you know, literature and books or magazines or comic books or you know other leisure sports like like I'm into hiking and skiing um, you just I think you know the broader an education you have in the world politics learn to talk politics it's okay it, it's a third rail but sometimes you know you, you can make <laughs> you can make it you can make it work right. uh, be interested in everything and be able to converse with people about many things other than just sports yeah. I think that's that's super important right. and that that I've seen more people in the sports world who don't have sports, you know, my, my piece of paper, the athletic administration. They come from philosophy majors in English and law, mm-hmm. a lot from law. And, you know, 
they've taken what they know about the world and what they know about their passion and their, their favorite subject and brought it into the sports world. And those are the wildly successful people. It's true. Right? There has to be many layers to people. Yes, right? and, absolutely. And, and just it's can't... not just about loving your, your team and being a passion, passionate person about that. It's true. you, you got to be more well-rounded. That's, that's a, a huge piece of advice I would give anybody and everybody. Well, 32 years at Univision, and um, I, I could say that you're a legend in the industry then. And, um, you know, it's what you've done is uh, had to be a high level of character and relationships and integrity. It doesn't happen. 32 years doesn't happen with any without those, you know, and you can stack those on top of each other. And your next chapter in life, you know, it's I'm I'm. I'm glad you don't live that far away from where we are so we can stay in contact and, and be a guest on our show. Um, and we would love to continue to tap into your experience and knowledge. I'd love to come back here and talk about the other projects that, that our little group, we call ourselves TRIO, uh, the, the stuff that we're, we're coming up with. It's, it, it's, it's so much fun because it's not just, uh, not just sports. There's reality TV shows. We're thinking about reimagining movies that were very popular in Mexico and bringing them to the U.S. in English for uh, for wow. American audiences with, with with different topics that haven't haven't been exposed here. Um, and uh, and uh, I, I said reality shows and game shows and comedy. We're you know our genre is not going to be limited to uh, to just sports. We're we've got a lot of things in the hopper. It sounds like fun. It is. It's the great thing is when you're not working for a corporation anymore, you could do, you know, you could have more creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, thanks so much for being on our sh- on our, shores, um, our on our show, Sports Biz Podcast, presented by Game Plan U, which you did the live read, so we'll just drop that in. Thank you. Which was excellent. So, thanks again for your time. This was a ton of fun. Thank you, Rob. Oh, you bet. Much appreciated. No, sure. All Absolutely. the best. Love having you. Thanks again for listening to Sports Biz Podcast, presented by Game Plan U, with your co-hosts, Rob Thompson and Mark Kerpo. You can watch us live Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. East Coast Standard Time, on Instagram, at Game Plan U. For more information, go to sportsdreamjob.com.